It's good to know that the Lord, even though we might not always sing beautifully in the world standards, the Lord is blessed in the hearing of our songs to Him. I love a line out of that last hymn. Sorrow forgot. Love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when changes, change and tears are past. All safe and blessed we shall meet at last. That's a good stuff. And there are more. There are more verses to this song written in antiquity. But it's a good reality. It's what we're doing every time we gather together is that our soul could be at rest. That we should be still. Because, beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, I witness unstillness constantly. I see it in your lives. I see it in your social media profiles. I see it in your face. I see it when you get off work. I see it in your text messages and your conversations. And you, likewise, probably see it in mine. And so the very fact that some of us may sit here some mornings and are troubled and stirred and irritated, it is because of the sin nature of our being. It is because of a lack of humility and the lack of the ability without... without the, the Spirit of God working and intervening through the teaching of His Word, we will always be caught up in the non-stillness, the restlessness of life. And that's what we always want. Even the cults know that. They knock on your door and this is their stick. They say, I'd like to talk to you about peace. And you think, who's that? Do they live down the street? <laughs> is that your dog? You know, there is no peace. I'd like to talk to you about peace. But beloved, when we talk about Christ, we're talking about peace. He is our Passover. He is our propitiation. He is our peace. And that's why the apostles, specifically Paul, is so quick to always impose grace, mercy, peace, love, hope as he addresses the church. So today, we're going to be in the letter of Jude. I was going to say Jude chapter 1, but we're going to be in, in Jude as a way of reminder this little post-it note. And we're going to deal with the church continually as the buttress. Remember, we're going to talk about faith and what saving faith is according to the context of the writing of the apostles, not historical record of the Reformed tradition or anything like that. If we can't defend it with the verses torn out of the Bible, we don't know what we're talking about, okay? <laughs> Let me just say that again. It doesn't matter what we've remembered that we've heard. Ditto heads are not wise. Okay? And I have found that just even in some conversations this week, just reminded the fact that oh, people that know it all don't want to talk to people who are wise. They want to be heard. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality 
and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although once fully knew it, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who were not believing. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains into gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the, angel Mark, uh, when the archangel Michael contended with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed braggers, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it. It's interesting because in my preparation to talk about contending for the faith, which is what our topic is this morning, about how the church, as the buttress of the truth, also must stand for the truth. Contend or defend or stand up for the faith. But in our world today, we don't do it according to the scripture. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit, that we may be instructed in the ways of Christ, not in the ways of culture. But I find it interesting that last week when Brother Armando read, he read this entire letter and he also read uh, Philemon. And I'm thinking, wow, that's just, that's just yeah. Because I was only going to just deal with the first part of the text. And after hearing it in my ears last week, I'm going, nah, I just got to deal with the whole thing. And I remember preaching through Jude. And then also one night in midweek some years ago, I preached the entire letter of Jude again. It's a recurring theme. Because as Pastor Jesse and I were talking this past week, We feel like, and this may be some arrogance or just negligence on our part as pastors, we feel like, you know what, we've addressed that. We've touched over that. We've taught this. 
moving right along, we're all on the same page. But there's something innately frustrating in our minds as people that, for me as a pastor, I'm constantly reading Jude. I'm constantly reading Jude. I'm constantly reading Romans. I would say that at the end of the year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a year, I've read the entire New Testament in my study, in my personal faith, listened to it on the road. And then to think that every Christian in the seat does the same is ridiculously naive of me. So even with my exposure to Scripture, which is completely lacking, I still find myself remembering that which I already know and have taught not only from the pulpit but from the classroom, have written in essays and theses and everything else from the context of analyses and higher criticism. We need reminders. We need reminders. But we're annoyed by reminders, aren't we? We're annoyed when we're 49 years old and our mother says, you drive careful, don't speed. I'm not 20. Or when we tell our children, buckle your seatbelt, don't forget to brush your teeth, don't forget to hang up your towel. I know, I know, I know. We hate reminder, but yet when it comes to the faith, it should be like a refreshing aroma to our ears and soul. But therein we come back to the issue of who is wise and who is just knowledgeable. Knowledgeable people love to tell what they know. Wise people love to listen to the nonsense and then, if the opportunity awaits, steer and guide. Beloved, if a man doesn't handle the word of God in wisdom for the sake of the joy of the sheep, he cannot speak it rightly. And even saying the right thing to the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong way is sinful. So there's two things that I want to talk about today. One is I want to talk about what it means to contend for the faith. How we do it. But I want to remind us what the faith is. Because we use that word as if it's just a a thing in and of itself. We use the word... We use the word faith as if it's some substance. We use the word gospel as if it just is the thing that we've created and took hold of. The gospel. This is the gospel. Well, beloved, there's only one way to define the gospel. And any additions or subtractions to these things create a false gospel. There's only one way to define Jesus, and that is through the revelation of the word of God in its fullness. Not in its pretext, not in its verses. I strongly encourage you who have not, don't have a Bible without the verses and numbers and everything in it to get a reader's Bible and read it. And by all means, put your study Bibles up. Because we're too ADD as a culture and a community to have all those nice little maps and whirly gigs and, and everything else going on and just... You know, when we have the Bible on our tablets and phones, we ought to have a feature in those apps where it locks everything out. We had to put a 45-thing passcode and hold our fingers down for like five seconds to get in it because we're just so attention deficit to the Word of God. And there's a supernatural component to that that the enemy doesn't want us to focus on the Word of God. But, beloved, if you just get a cheap $4 reader's Bible and just read it, God will transform your brain, your attitude, your heart your marriage, your relationship at work, your thoughts about the future. 
And your butts will be in the seats here if you're in the Word of God. Your hearts would be tuned to one another if you're in the Word of God. Because God has promised to teach us and to guide us and to equip us through the hearing of the Word. And that doesn't mean we're going to take all of our week and study a Word and then do proof texts and then do commentaries and act like God's going to teach us something. We'll learn some things, but we're not going to learn from God that way. So what is the gospel? First, God's gospel is not a real word. It is now. But in Jesus' day, it didn't exist. Old English had not been invented. The word gospel is a transliterated contraction of an old English variant of the word gospel. G-O-D-S-P-L. L. Which means God story. Or good story. Oh, that's God. <laughs> you know, sort of like an Irish tint. It all works together. So the word gospel is a new creation. That means the good story. That's all it means. And there is no other meaning whatsoever found in the entirety of the Word of God. So the question then, what story? What story? What historical record is gospel? Good news. And that is found very succinctly in Paul's writing to the, first of, to the church of Corinth in his first letter. Chapter 15, which Brother Trey has dealt with in the last few months, several times, referred to about what the gospel is. It's not new for us. We've talked about it. We've read it. We've talked through it as a church. But why is it always necessary to be reminded? Because the culture says other things. History says other things. Some people have come into our fellowship and said, well, the gospel is perfect knowledge. Some people have come in and said, well, the gospel is, you know, your response. Not has a thing to do with it. Some people would say, well, the gospel this and the gospel that. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by way of reminder, isn't that funny? I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I taught you and preached to you. See, the word preaching and teaching are synonymous. There's not two distinct acts. If I'm preaching I'm teaching. If I'm teaching, I'm preaching. And the grammar of the New Testament uses those words interchangeably, sometimes in the same paragraph. Now, we may get technical. Well, preaching is a public proclamation. Okay. Preaching is also exhortation, admonishment, encouragement. And that also includes teaching, because every time there's preaching, teaching must take place. Preaching is not pounding the principles and pounding the pulpit to pound the pews into submission. It's not dogma for the sake of behavior modification or brainwashing. Anybody to believe this is an idiot? That's one of the most favorite things for me to say because it gets people upset and then unbeknownst to me, that's really what I want sometimes. You ever done that? It's called, it's called nonsense, knuckleheadedness, foolishness. It's definitely not wise, it's sinful. It's the gospel, I preach to you, I talk to you, Thessalonica. You receive the gospel, the good story of Jesus Christ that we brought to you in power. 
Not just in your brains. But the Word of God came to you in power. And the Spirit of God came to you in power. And we not only see it through the belief that God has gifted you. Not, you have not mustered faith out of a new mind. The reason you have a new mind in faith is because God has given it to you. You received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of the butchery of the use of the idea of saved, being saved, and all of that. But he gives a condition there. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel is the proclamation. Is the narration of the promise of God to send the seed of the woman to save his people. Mashiach, Messiah, Christ, Christos, whatever language you want to put it in. The anointed one set apart from God. Sent. And Paul never mixes and mingles the fruits of gospel truth and the necessary conditions of gospel salvation with the gospel message. He never does that. None of the apostles do. Jesus surely didn't. But yet it is a habit that we have. You know, I said, where in the world do we... Just think about it. Think about it. The, the, very, the very idea of asking someone if they're saved... brings about an untold number of responses. And most of them in our culture are so sideways and so unbiblical. Are you saved? And rarely do we find somebody saved from what? A hurricane? I mean, yeah, they usually know we have some Bible-ish mindset in this conversation. But Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received. So he's not changing anything. He's not added to it. Paul's philosophy has never invaded the gospel. Paul's practical wisdom has never invaded the gospel. That's why it's so easy for a culture to believe a big fat preaching head that gets popular through radio or television or now internet and can change the very foundation of the gospel message to mean that if you are living a life in obedience, you're saved. And that's a lie. Or I'm better than I was. I'm not as sinful as I was. Well, what if you grew up in a religious home and you're never really that sinful? It's easy for the... Crackhead, drug-dealing mobster to go, man, I'm a changed guy. It's hard for the Bible-studying, pretty straight-A student to go, well, now I know Jesus. The true Jesus. But I'm really still a sinner, but not in his eyes. Because he put the justice and wrath on the Son, and the Son's righteousness is credited to me. So in the court of heaven, I'm free, I'm innocent. 
Having never sinned. That's what's crazy about justification. It's not, you clean up now, I'm going to clean you up. A changed life, evidenced by faith alone, is established by the promise of God and His power. And what is this gospel-only message that I received, Paul says, that I'm now delivering to you and reminding you of that Christ died for our sins. Not the world, not every particular person in the world ever, without exception. That's not true. People who believe that have never read the New Testament. And it's difficult. Because the culture... 99.9999% of the culture and Christian circles don't know that. And I'm, I can, I can, it's anecdotal, it's only my experience, but I can tell you this, is that most of the preacher associates that I have, most of the people that I've known through the quarter century that I've been doing ministry, who are also pastors in other denominations and other cultures and other places and other... Few of them have ever even read the New Testament. You ask the average pastor what the letter of Jude is about. Jude, Jude, Jude. Heaven help if you talk to them about 1 John or 3 John. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins. According to the prophets. And the promises of God, according to the scriptures, the Old Testament, according to the promise that Jesus Christ would come into the world through a virgin and save his people from their sins. That he was buried, what does that impose? Common sense. He was buried alive, oh no! I mean, it's not that big a deal to be buried alive in a cave. Just move the, you know... Hello, you shut the door on me. That's not what happened. He died, (laughs) okay? He died. He died badly. Terribly. Painfully. And when they shoved the spear, about that big, up into his chest cavity, asphyxiation was proven by the fact that water and blood poured out onto the ground. He was buried. That means he died. That means the gospel message. He died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then he appeared to Kepha. Or Cephas as we say in English. Which is Peter. Then to the twelve. So not only did he. Ray, he didn't just vanish. He walked around, talked, ate, used the bathroom, all that good stuff. Yes, Jesus was a human as well as being God. So now we have this gospel message. It's a simple gospel message. It's a very simple thing. Simple grace, simple truth, simple hope. And there is no way and nowhere in Scripture that entangles anything else in the gospel message. There's no responses in the gospel message. It's not a good message to be told that you must turn or burn. The gospel message is not an offer of salvation to all people, even though we are to proclaim it to the nations. 
Only the elect of God will hear it by the power of God. If you come, you will live. That's a true statement of condition that we see, especially the Jews being told. You don't see Gentiles hearing that in the context. And we don't see the church being instructed that very much in the letters. But we do see that in the very first weeks of Christ's ascension. After the upper room experience, when they go out and they're teaching and preaching the gospel in power, and people are hearing their languages and the undoing of the picture of Babel, and God separating the ability and the power and the ability of man to ever unify as a picture of his sovereignty and salvation. That's what Babel's all about, beloved. And so that God undoes it by the Spirit. God himself is the only one who can unconfuse man, who can unify man. Only Christ brings the bride together as one body, not Theologians, not pastors, not culture, not history, not affinity. Christ. And so we see all of this taking place, and then we know that the gospel message then doesn't include something that the Scripture teaches that man cannot do. We see that in John chapter 3 and 4, don't we? And I submit to you this, that by the power of God and the authority of God and His Word, that the Scripture is very clear to say that I could take and read John's Gospel, chapter 1, and in the hearing of a thousand people, if God so chooses to bring faith in Christ through the hearing of that Word alone, through a megaphone, He can do it. And I've been told, as of yesterday, that that's nonsense. You've got to explain more things in order for it to be the full gospel. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's why we have the narrative of the gospels. And we see people hearing the proclamation. I mean, at the hill of Ares, the Areopagus served. We call it Mars because Mars is the other name of Ares, right? So... The hill of Ares, Mars Hill, Areopagus. Paul is teaching. Jews are in earshot. The Greeks are there. The ruling Areopagus. They're there. And Paul, what is this? Is this Acts 17? Paul just basically reiterates with expansion and a little bit of, a little bit of rhetoric what he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. There's this God who came to the earth and he lived a life and he died for the sins of his people and he was buried and he rose from the dead and that was it. That was it. And he lost half his audience. The same reason Jesus lost all of his audience when he said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That my death, the crushing of my body and the shedding of my blood is your salvation. Not what are you going to do with it. That's a false gospel. If I say right now, oh, my phone, my, my watch beep, the sheriff's department just told us that there is someone shooting across the street. We need to go out this back door and around the back of this building for safety. And I leave, and y'all sit here. Well, James, you didn't tell us to come. It implies it. Hello, welcome to... Whatever restaurant. How can I help you today? 
there's an implication of context. It's like I told this person yesterday, you know, if I come up to you in the shopping mall, or the shopping shopping mall, if I come up to you in the, in the, in the grocery store and your shopping cart has a gallon of milk in it, and I say, hey, you know what? I know about some milk that never spoils. And I do. Never spoils. It's shelf stable. Keep it forever. <laughs> and you say, hmm, where did I get this milk? I think you're full of it. You're tricking me. How much is this milk? Where might I purchase it? Is that not John 4? What has happened when I said, I got some milk over here that never spoils? Okay. <laughs> you just walk away? No. It's going to cause dissonance in your thoughts. Because the way we think about certain things lays completely in the context of our lives and our thought processes. So we are always thinking about the things that we think about the way we think about them. The word repentance literally means a transformation of disposition in thought. That means if I say to you, you could have milk that never spoils. Because you told me yesterday, man, I just waste so much money on milk. It just goes bad for I can use it. And I say to you, I know where some milk is that never spoils. I don't have to force you to ask the question, where is it? It's called cognitive function. It's a brain work. But more importantly, when it comes to the gospel, what is it? It's divine work. It's divine work. And beloved, this is where we can have peace that surpasses understanding. Dale Carnegie would tell us about closing the sale. We don't close gospel. We don't close it. I've been brought under correction, not church discipline, but employee discipline, because I did not close services before with a, with a call to faith. And the next week I called it witchcraft. It was foolish, but productive. I think the first Harry Potter movie had just come out. It's called Pelagianism if you want to know the historical points. The scripture teaches us what the gospel is. I mean, Paul in Romans 1. Listen to the first six verses of Romans 1. Paul, an apostle, a slave of Jesus Christ. What does he say? Called to be an apostle, why? Set apart for the good story of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, what we just learned in 1 Corinthians 1, 15. In the Holy Scriptures, according to Scriptures. Concerning what? His son, who was descended from David. There's the historical connection to the prophecies. According to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And that is a divine work. It is not an outward expression. And I won't take time to read all 18 verses of John chapter 1, but if I did and I shut my Bible, anyone that God so seems deems ready for salvation and regeneration, 
He will cause you to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That he came to his own and his own people did not accept him to receive him and acknowledge him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not, what? Born not of blood, nor the will of the mind, nor the will of the flesh, but but the will of God. And we know that the scripture says we've all received grace upon grace. The law given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but he who is at his side, the only God, has made him known. In John 4, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, oh, how are you going to give me living water? How are you going to get me unspoilable milk? You got no money. You got no shopping cart. You got no bucket. And the well is really, really deep. You can't give it to me. And where are you going to get that anyway? You know, Jacob, our father, he built this well for all his livestock and his families. Are you greater than him? Are you thinking you can give me better water than Jacob gave? Get out of here. That's nonsense. What happened in the woman of Sychar's mind? She was confronted with her belief system without being confronted with her belief system because she heard in her ear an alternate truth, a contrary idea. That's what the gospel of grace alone does to the human mind, especially the religious minds. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst. But anyone who drinks of the living water will never thirst again, ever. Because I will give it to them. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water that wells up, overflows. And it's killer what he says here, to eternal life. So it's not just water that never goes dry. It's water that makes you live forever. What? I'll outlive all these knuckleheads that hate my guts down in Sychar. Give me the water. I'll take it. I'll never have to come back here again and publicly look, be looked down upon. That's the gospel. And how do we know that? Because then she argues that he's a prophet. Jesus tells her something she already knows about herself. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You have told the truth when you say I have no husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five and you're shacking up with a dude now. I mean, can you imagine meeting a total stranger in like Arizona on your way across country and they say that to you and like you get in your car and I'm like, you didn't even get gas, you're just going to keep going and that's not a place not to get gas. 285 miles to the next rest stop. I perceive you're a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Father that you so claim to know Woman, the true father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, nowhere, out of nowhere, she remarks these words. Out of all that theological debate with God, imagine that. Should have named her Israel. Argues with God. (laughs) Wrestles with God. That's what it means. 
She says, I guess, I guess only Messiah, only Messiah is the answer to these things. Only Messiah will show me this truth. And she runs to the very place she doesn't want to be, to the public that despise her. And she says, behold, look, I've met a man that's told me everything I've ever done. He never said that. Because the Spirit of God imposes upon the will of the lost elect person at regeneration the knowledge of grace. And the idea of grace, if it's grace, I know I don't deserve it. If it's mercy, I know that I'm guilty. You see what I'm saying? So all this fodder and foolishness of finneyism and stuff like that, for those of you who know the history of evangelical false gospels, is just invaded the very simplicity of grace. So if we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to contend for the right faith. Quit adding to all these things because if we add to, then somebody else adds to, then who's right? Paul is right. Jesus is right. Paul, I've already used Acts 17. I won't use it again, but he basically said this, this God that I'm talking about doesn't need human hands to dust his face off and put him back on the shelf. And you're wise enough to know that you don't have all the answers because you've got a God over here that says to the unknown God, let me tell you who this God is. And here Paul proclaims the gospel. What you say is unknown. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to teach you right now. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed us or needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything and he made from one man every nation of humanity to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our heart. Even, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul says, being then God's offspring. Get that. Even though you, you Greeks, in your own poems have said, we are the offspring of gods. So as God's offspring, it's not theological instruction there, it's rhetorical proclamation. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, what does he say? He commands all people to think differently exactly what that word means. You better change how you're thinking concerning God because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, here's the gospel, that He has appointed and He has given assurance by all by raising Him from the dead. And then it went sideways. Nope. Nope. Oh, we were with you, Paul. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a couple of scrolls on this TED Talk. And he is an idiot. Come on, John, let's leave. Dummy. Raise him from the dead garbage. But they believe some god went down in the grave and, like, stole a box and put his daughter in prison. I mean, you know, it's funny, isn't it? But not coming back from the dead. Some man. 
That was their Achilles heel. <laughs> but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite, Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. See, God regenerated them. They did nothing. They didn't come back and chitter-chatter with Paul and lead them through anything. God just saved them. How do we know? Because their mind was changed. They didn't walk away like everybody else thinking that was a ridiculous assertion that this man was raised from the dead. All of a sudden, they had the divine gift of faith, which is repentance. If you have faith, that is repentance. So now that we understand the gospel and simplicity is all about the person of Jesus Christ, let us go back to the reality of where we started, to the context of where we started, rather, and deal with the reality of what it means to contend for the faith. Because this very conversation that we're having this morning, it's a conversation. I'm not up here lecturing. I'm imposing on your thoughts. And you're going, hmm, 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 hmm. You know, your thumb up, thumb down, smiley face, sad face, angry face. You're doing all that in your head. That stuff wasn't created, it's just extrapolated from the human conscience. It's what we do. I mean, that's why they were called emoticons when we were coming up. Now they're emojis, which I have no idea what that means. Continue for the faith. Defend the faith. Stand firm in the faith. I mean, everybody I know in the world, cults alike, they all want to stand firm in the faith. I'm going to be an apologist. I'm going to defend the faith. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my sword and get my this and get my that. I'm going to go after folks. I'm going to do it. Let me give you 12 quick things. I had a bunch, but I thought, I've got to stop because this isn't the point of the message. I'm going to give you 12 things that are not contending for the faith. Very quick, rapid succession. Contending for the faith is not arguing and debating. Contending for the faith is not fighting against error through polemics and character assassination. Contending for the faith is not isolating ourselves from others who are in unbelief. Matter of fact, that's wicked. It's wicked. Continuing for the faith is not ignoring error, but acting according to the gospel against it. Continuing for the faith is not just for elders and theologians, it's for every believer. Contending for the faith is not fighting to keep the truth the truth, it doesn't need our help. Contending for the faith is not seeking out error under every rock and crack. Contending for the faith is not accepting false teachers, but somewhat gently sometimes rebuking them. Contending for the faith is not damaging a wayward sibling, but being patient. Contending for the faith requires first things first, according to the scripture, among the local church. Contending for the faith is not going to a church or finding a ministry that we can out and root out the error and fix it. Well, that's a God complex if I've ever heard one. It's like your neighbor knocking on your door telling you how to mix your potatoes. I'll tell you what you can do, Mr. Neighbor. Go back over there with your tater flakes and leave me to the grinding. Continuing for the faith is not going to stop. It is not going to stop. There will always be an occasion every single day of our lives, especially inside the church, that the local assemblies of believers are responsible for continuing for the faith themselves. So let's look at Jude. We see three specific things 
very quickly, one of four things. A servant of Jesus Christ to those who are called, those who are beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then we see mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you. So Jude is writing to believers who are called. Called to what? Called by the Spirit. How do we know someone's been called by the Spirit? They believe. Beloved, if someone doesn't believe the gospel, they haven't been born again. But it doesn't mean they're not elect. You see, that's another problem with this little conversation. There are some people who believe that they've been given the divine eye of knowing who are the elect and who are the reprobate. That's nonsense. That's not our business. Only church discipline settles the issue of, settles the issue of intimacy, but it never allows us to make judgment on that issue. Ever. We are to treat our brother or sister as if they are an unbeliever. We withhold benefit. We withhold intimacy. We withhold the means of grace. But they are in our minds a believer who has fallen away. You see. We cannot say someone is unconverted unless they deny the gospel. And then stomp their feet and leave. But even then... We do well to just be patient, as we'll see in just a second. We're called, we are so beloved in the Father. God doesn't love every Tom, Dick, and Harry in town. Just like I don't love every woman in Claxton. I'd be in big trouble, wouldn't I? I may love them generally in the sense of they're human beings, just like I love dogs, because I don't want to see them suffer either. Just like I love my neighbor who may hate my guts. We love them through service, but it doesn't mean that every person that we love is our spouse. Or every child that we love is our child. Because while if this room was full of a thousand people and all everyone's children and there was a, something that happened, surely all of us would help each other get all the children to safety, but instinctively we're going to see our children first. God loves his people. How? It is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. God does not feel and emote. He doesn't have a battery of emoticons or emojis. That's not how he reveals himself. He reveals himself through one act concerning his love. And that is his grace toward his people in the death of his son, which is the good story of his promise. It's too simple, isn't it? Therein lies a problem. The beloved of God. Not just beloved of God in the death of Jesus, but we are kept for Jesus. Look at that. Kept for Jesus. Like Peter's first epistle, chapter 1. Like Ephesians, chapter 1. I mean, look, this is not new. Paul's not, Jude isn't out of his office rocker. He's just parroting the very same thing that the Spirit of God taught him that taught the other apostles. Well, we know, how do they remember all that? Jesus said that they would. He said, I'm going to send the paraclete. I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send my spirit. And he, that's a person, is going to cause you to remember everything that I've ever taught you. You're not going to forget because you're humans and you can't do this on your own. I must cause you to remember. Beloved, I'm not an apostle, so I have to keep reading it all. God help me 
keep the Word of God in my head. I used to think about back when I was doing a bunch of stuff, I'm like, I'm going to get me some tattoos. You know what? I'm going to tattoo John's gospel on my body. The whole thing. Can you see that? In the Greek, without spaces. <laughs> the higher critics would follow me around. Oh, look at Tippins. They find my body one day, preserve my skin, put it in a frame. Man, this is like a minuscule. We're kept for Christ. It's important because it's what Jude says. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the essence of the Christian experience. That we've received mercy. We've received love. We've received peace through Jesus Christ. And we're being kept. Who by God's power are being kept. Because God loves us. How do we know? Because Christ died for us. How do we know? Because God's caused us to trust in that truth. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, Man, beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I just wanted to opine in the gospel for a little bit. But the problem is that there's some people among you that have come in unnoticed who are doing two things. They are using the grace of God. Grace, grace, grace. Carpe diem. Sin like you want to. Like it's 1999, you know. How disappointing was 2000 for Prince. I mean, I'm sorry. That was always a joke growing up. What's it going to be like? The Y2K? I think I burned those books finally when I was cold one winter. Just party, party, party. And Jews like, these people can't use grace as a way of promoting sensuality and sinfulness. And secondly, they've denied the, the, they've denied the divinity of our Lord. So they've made Jesus just a human being. Which is somewhat quasi-Gnostic, isn't it? But it's anti-Gnostic at the same time. In other words, this new knowledge that I've got, but it's sort of material. And so let's just enjoy this material world. Jesus, I guarantee you they had something to say. Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a man. He enjoyed life. You can enjoy life too in this sinful ways. Nonsense. Jude said this is ridiculous. So the error was twofold. This is the point I'm making. It was theological error. Concerning Christ as person. And it was behavioral error. Concerning how we ought to live as Christians. Anytime one of those is taught. It's a heresy. What does heresy mean? A divided opinion that causes trouble and strife. And discourse. And arguments. And separation. So the church must contend for the faith. First and foremost. In the truth of what the faith is. The gospel of Christ and his work. And then the truth of God revealed in the teaching of the scripture of how we ought to live according to the gospel. We don't mix the two. They're completely two different things, yet they're related in that God has called us to a different life as believers. And so there's some phrases. There's some things that we see in scripture that are always at work. And I have to give these fast because I don't want to make this a three-part sermon. We hear the, the idea of contend for the faith, fighting the faith, running the race, keeping the faith, keeping ourselves, as we'll see in just a minute, in the love of God, striving, enduring, running the race, 
Put away sin. So let's look at away some of these things. And y'all, y'all know where we are. Y'all, when I said those phrases, you, you probably came in your mind. If you don't know where it is in the scripture, you know that the scripture testifies of those things. So let's look at a few ways that this is viewed in Scripture. First, when doctrinal error, we have to talk with other believers in the church when they espouse a false doctrine. I mean, we have that responsibility. I mean, we're glad to do it in the context of politics or economics or social issues or whatever, or some of these things that I have just decided I'm never going to spend my time on anymore. Destroys me. And then it's bad for you. So we have to. We're told in the Bible, you know, speak the truth in love, say these things or whatever. But we can never be judgmental. So sometimes we, when it comes to doctrinal errors, we have to talk to one another. And we have to insist that, you know what, what you're saying right here is just, we need to get some help. We need to, but we've got to be patient in it, as you'll see. We don't just sit around and go, yeah, old Bob, there he is again. Remember him from last week. Old Bob teaches some nonsense he found on the internet or he thought of in his, in his dreams or in the shower. And he won't stop. He just keeps on with it, insisting on his point of view and his word usage and everything else. And by golly, let's just let him have it. No, you have to say something. But you don't tear down the walls when you dust the house. Because when the walls come down, it's a bigger mess. Peter was confronted. Then Peter confronted his readers about their not believing in the incarnation. Did you realize that? Or the second coming? Paul, the same thing in Thessalonica. People in Galatia thinking that circumcision and following the law was beneficial. And if you're really a believer, well, you better get this just in case. It's an insurance policy. What an insurance policy. James confronts those in oversight about favoritism, in his oversight about favoritism, bragging, talking trash, lack of giving, hatred, jealousy. And he says you need to love the Lord in word and deed. Well, I believe in the gospel of grace. Well, you're not living it. That's James's letter. And if you're not living it, you can't stay with us. You're living like a heathen. So we have to confront doctrine and behavior. John teaches the churches to avoid supporting false teachers. So sometimes subtly, we don't say, look at this false teacher, he's bad. No, that's promoting a false teacher. If you've got a friend, because most people who do that have no friends, and their mom and spouse are kind enough to like their posts, most people have no friends, and they're telling Everybody who's scared that they're going to be next on the list, so everybody watches, but nobody's honest. Don't look at that over there. And what do we do? We look at that over there. So the very nature of some of these knuckleheads is to promote false teaching. John says not to do that. What's the way to not promote false teaching? Close the window. Turn down the radio. Stop sending checks to these parachurch ministries. Well, they've got a good orphanage. But they're Satanists. I mean, you know, come on, let's use some common sense. Well, his economic policies are good, but he's a murderer. we got a mess. And no matter what, 
It's like John would say, don't give them food or shelter. Send them on the way to come through town. There's another town up the road with some pagans that will help them. You don't stop and go, hey, let's go right here. And put up a tent and try to show people as he's walking through town he's a false teacher. How about bring no attention to him? That's what we do. So Jude, he continues in 17, he says, and I'm skipping a lot there because it's not the point, but the point now we're getting to is this, is that Jude teaches us how to contend for the faith. It's very simple. That's why I put it last. You must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles about our Lord Jesus. He said, in the last time there will be scoffers, there will be people following their own ungodly passion. There will be people who will not believe the truth and do what they want to do. It is these who cause, listen to this, Divisions, they're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, but you, in contrast, I'm not talking about you and the church members there. I'm not talking about the saints who are caught up in this. I'm talking about these people who started it. But you, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, here's the command, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy, the grace of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And instruction, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then the doxology, verses 24 and 25. So what does that teach us? Verses 17, 18, and 19 is telling us that error will always be here. In the church, not in the world. Who cares? It's not our business. God's sovereignty has put error in the world. God's sovereignty has allowed error to creep into the church. God's sovereignty has given us simple instruction on how to handle it peaceably, without even, without even any stress. You realize we can handle divisions in the church without ever losing a wink of sleep, without our bodies being destroyed and bleeding internally and headaches and migraines and eye problems and everything else because of inflammation and anxiety. Believe that. Error will always be there. It is foretold and guaranteed. It will never stop. So our contending is not for the removal and the marking of all the error. Our contending is to stand in confidence, joy, unity, and the reconciliation with God's people. That's what Jude says. So the twofold way error is invasive. It divides with bad behavior handling things wrong, living wrongly, sinfully, etc., and with teaching, heresies and falsehoods. But Jude isn't talking about these people that he's talking to. Verses 20 through 23, he says, But you, now it is not about the false teachers and the divisive antinomian legalists or whoever they might want to be that make up their own laws and rules, but it's about the saints. And now the instruction comes of how we contend for the faith we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. What does that mean? We continue to learn. We never become the guy or the girl who says, yeah, I know that. Now, there are some things we know. I'm not putting that past us. There are some of the things that you guys know that I, I have to go to you. What do you think about this? Because I know you know it. But when it comes to the knowledge of the truth, even if you might know it, there's always a humility to know that you're not necessarily wise in it. At least there is for me. I hope there is for you. So to be reminded to build myself up in the most holy faith, that is to be reminded to stay in the word of God and to stay around God's people 
and to get ready for some things to happen where we might not agree so that we can actually celebrate the doxology to him who is able when we reconcile. That's the picture of the gospel, by the way. So we grow in the truth of Christ. We grow through reading the scripture. We grow through sharing the gospel. We grow in the gathering and learn together. Second, we keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, what in the name of all get out is that? And I've preached this before. I preached an entire sermon on that text before, somewhere in the last so many years. It's funny, I go back to look for a sermon. I'm like, was that last year? Like seven years ago, 11 years ago. Time. So funny. So how are we to keep ourselves in the love of God? Are we to walk lockstep in a certain way? Are we to dress a certain way? Oh, my God. What am I? My hair's out of whack. I'm out of the love of God. I mean... And I know that's absurd, but that's how tenacious it becomes when we are trying to earn God's love. That's not about earning God's love. We love God because he first loved us, John says. But how is it that all of the apostles teach us that we love God? What does it mean to keep ourselves? It means to walk according to our love for God. How do we do it? There's only one way. There's only one way. Serve other saints. Not teach them, not rebuke them, not all that kind of stuff. Serve them. Love them. The only possible way to love Christ is to love his people. There is no such thing as an emotional love for Jesus by the saints. There can be adoration, worship, thanksgiving, but that's not love. Love is serving one another. And serving one another is always costly, it's always irritating, it's always aggravating, it's always a better option. (laughs) There's always a better option. I mean, there are types of people that I could love easily. They don't bother me. They never show up. They never have a problem. I just love them to death. They're awesome. I never see them, I guess. It's, you know, it's like I know I got that thing somewhere around the house. It used to hang on the wall. I don't know where it is. It doesn't get in the way. You don't have to dust it. You don't have to deal with it. Of course you have fondness. Fondness is not love. Love is, ah, oh, this again. Fell off the wall, it's cracked, it's broken, got a dust, you know. Love hurts. Love costs. Our time, our energy, our finances, our minds, parents. <laughs> Did I just, that, that's the four points of parenting. <laughs> Loving our children, that's what it cost us. Somebody write a book about it. So we keep ourselves in the love of God by loving others. This is the centrality of gospel power. After salvation, the centrality of living in gospel power is loving one another. But we as knuckleheads are going to mess it all up. And other knuckleheads are going to mess it up for us. But we love them and we celebrate the love of God in our dealings with them. Folks that are not taught of God concerning His sovereign love and His sovereign grace have a difficult time, listen to this, resting in the gospel when the faith is maligned in word or deed. I'll say that again. I wrote it down so I would not forget it. Folks that are not taught of God concerning His sovereign love and sovereign grace have a difficult time resting in the gospel when the faith is maligned in word or deed. Now what does that mean? It makes people furious, judgmental, antagonistic. And that is not the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has never given any of that to any human being, ever. 
So anytime we feel just edgy, it is the flesh. The vocabulary list just then in that four seconds was like, what do I say? Edgy. That was the culmination of that symposium. Then what do we do? Now those people cannot accept the God, the promises of God of resolution and purpose as the saints. We pray in the Spirit. Romans 8 teaches us that. Day. What is the Spirit? What's praying in the Spirit? Let me make it simple for you. Praying the will of God. What is the will of God? We see it right here in the letter of Jude. How am I supposed to do it? God, tell me! I mean, if I were God, I'm like, here's your sign. I wrote it down, dummy. Wake up with Jude tattooed on my tummy. So I'm meeting my oatmeal. I'm going, what is this? God's like, you said send more clearly the instruction. So Merry Christmas. By the way, Jesus was born in the spring, but celebrated anyway. Pray in the Spirit. Your will be done. It cannot be done, by the way. We can't even pray if we're not loving the saints. Because if we're not loving the saints and we're all twisted and turned, when we pray out of a twisted spirit, it's not the spirit. That's why it's so easy for us to mimic David under oppression. But none of us want to mimic Jesus under death. Forgive them, Lord. They do not know what, Father, they do not know what they do. Get them, Lord. Hurt them twice as bad as they're hurting me. There's no prescription for the church of Christ to pray for that. Bless them who hurt me, Father. Count them as your own. Turn them to your face. Give them what you take from me that they may have an abundant life. Paul said, if it would possible, take your grace from me and give it to those who hate it. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler, didn't he? You take everything you've worked for and give it to the people that you hate. Because you know who rich people hate? Needy people. So we pray in the Spirit, we wait for it by grace, and we give grace. Look at that text. Pray. Building yourself in the holy, most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God by serving others, waiting for the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life. So we wait by grace upon grace. The grace of God, His mercy, His, His intention, His power, effected in the life of His people unto regeneration, the giving of the Son, the judicial reality of the heavens and everything in the court of righteousness. These are not real things. They're metaphorical expressions of the mind of God. Okay? God's not walking around dusting something upstairs going, Oh, well, we've got a lot of rooms here. We've got to start getting some more people in here. Check the record book. Michael, make sure that uh, Tippin's name is down there. I don't want to get the records wrong. It's, you know, judicially speaking, the docket's got to be right. The docket is the mind of God. The, 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 the remission of sins is the mind of God. It's His work. There's not some ethereal court trial going on. In time, God is not in time. He owns it. He created it so that we could be stressed out. 
So we wait by grace. The mercy of God. He's coming for us. He promised it. Wow. I can't believe that guy cut in front of me at McDonald's. I mean, we can't even wait for McDonald's. How are we waiting for the Lord? And then we give grace to those who get confused, to those who doubt, to those who need to be rebuked. When did rebuke and encouragement and admonishment not become synonymous in its effect, in its purpose, and most importantly, in its intention? Love. Well, I'm loving by telling it like it is and keeping it real, and I'm going to put that guy in his place. That's not love. That's dumb. That's baby stuff. Matter of fact, I know preschoolers who are more mature than that. Don't put people in their place. Don't opine personally toward an individual, indirectly. We give grace. Those who are fearful and begin to doubt the gospel truths. Those who go through trials. Those who some falsehood comes in and everybody's up in arms. We just sit around and rest and talk about it. And let the word of God guide us. The spirit of God will give resolution. And the people who don't have peace are not in the spirit. Why do I have peace when the gospel's my lot? I mean, now come on. We're not primates, people. Well... Okay, I'll go from there. We are. <laughs> but we don't have to act like them. And then I add this explanation to the final point today. And I'll go on along. But we do the work of an evangelist. Waiting for the mercy of the Lord that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others. By snatching them out of the fire. It's an expression. It's not a direct teaching. It's an expression. What fire? Trial? Judgment? Unbelief? To others show mercy with fear? Trepidation? Humility? Hating the garment that is stained by the flesh, but never the person that wears it. Do the work of an evangelist. A true gospel lover has never... Listen to this. Oh, Lord, help me see this myself. A true gospel lover has never hated the objects of his preaching. Even when he's correcting their knuckleheadedness. He has never wanted to teach the truth in anger or to show the heretics. This attitude is of the enemy. If one becomes divisive and unwilling to be that which God's Word calls them to be, congregational correction will flesh the matter out according to the instruction of Jesus. And when there is a change of mind and forgiveness, it is finished. Unconditionally finished. What happens, it happens again three weeks later. We start from square one. It's, it's finished. And then the doxology, right? Now to him who is able. This is really where the preaching ought to have today. To what? Keep you from falling. 
and to present you blameless before His presence with great joy. To this God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forevermore. God keeps us from falling away. Even when we fall down or go sideways, we will always come back. And that is a reason for rejoicing. God has made us, declared us to be holy in His presence. And we will be blameless before Him because of Jesus Christ, not because of what He's making us to be. Even in glorification, without the erasing of the record of guilt and without the imputation of the God-man's perfection, we are still guilty. Because it is not the corrupted flesh that is the problem. It's the sinful conscience. And he's not going to wipe my mind. God's good story is our joy in the presence of his glory with great joy. This is where they go back to the gospel. How do we have joy in the midst of everything? We rest in the cross of Christ. Period. So when we proclaim the gospel, the evidences of God's working from the gospel is faith, repentance, all sorts of things that happen in the change and the transformation of the mind. Sometimes immediately, sometimes existentially, sometimes environmentally, and most always in the context of the assembly as we learn and hear the, the word of God taught, we celebrate the fruits of the gospel when someone believes when someone is transformed, when someone is born again. These are the fruits of the gospel. And without these fruits, we declare no one to what? To be born again. Well, I just don't believe that. All right, brother, let's just go in your unbelief and worship Jesus that you don't believe him. <laughs> I mean, that, see how silly that is? Without faith, you haven't been shown the gospel. God has accomplished this perfectly in Jesus Christ, to the only God, our Savior, through Christ our Lord. And the outcome of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. We love Him and we praise Him for His mercy. And this is how we contend for the faith, beloved. So different than what the world does, right? And it is all in the protective boundaries and precious boundaries of the local assembly because if we can't love each other in these turmoils, then no one can. The recipients of grace and mercy are the only ones who are equipped to love accordingly. And if we have received it by God and by God alone, let us live it. Let's prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to worship and to hear your word. And Lord, though it may seem belabored and drawn out, I thank you, Lord, that you've given some clarity in my mind about approaching who the church is and what we should be. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, that none of us should sit here feeling guilty because we didn't see or 
we didn't do or we've been guilty of some of these infractions in the past. Because, Lord, truth be known, we will probably do it again. Just as Peter denied your son three times, we do it all the time. And yet Jesus so graciously said, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Our love is never perfect. But your perfect love cast away our fear. Let us not fear error. But let us hold fast to the truth without compromise. Gently, patiently, and biblically. Help us. Help us to encourage each other to seek your face because only those who have been born of you can seek you. Only those who have been born of you can come after you. Because only those who have been born of you, Father, have the mind to see you and the ears to hear you. The ears to hear your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his body and blood as a payment for our sins. It's in his name that we pray and in his name that we worship. Amen.